How you doing? Nice to be with you. My name's Mark. Picked up a hitchhiker in Ontario. <laughs> yeah, just back from two weeks vacation. Nice to be home and uh, be back where it's dry. The, I, I know you're getting some rain here. We're getting some rain, but the humidity in Ontario. Thank you, Jesus, for Alberta. It's good to be here. It, I, th I think I sweat straight for two weeks. And as soon as the plane door opened in Calgary, I finally stopped sweating. So I'm grateful to be home. Yeah, we brought my dad home. This is a nice surprise. I asked dad, hey, do you think you'd want to maybe come out to Calgary sometime? And dad was like, <laughs> and he called me back the next day and said, uh, I think I'm going to take you up on that offer. So we're delighted to have my dad here. Give us a wave, Dad. I really appreciate my dad. He's been like a father to me. <laughs> Best dad I ever had. And uh, yeah, we're, we're in the middle of a Pray First series, apparently. I don't know. I, that's the word on the street. Uh, this is part... What, 37? Two, part two. Okay. So the whole point of the Pray First series is we are becoming not a church that just prays occasionally or a church of prayer, but we're moving towards being a praying church where our first priority in everything that we do, uh, if someone's sick, we don't just rush off to the doctor. We, no, let's just take a moment. Let's pause and pray. You know, before we go to work today, let's Let's just take a moment and pray. Before we have this meal, let's just have a prayer. Let's, let's just be people who are consumed with depending on God. That's not a bad place to be, hey? Place of depending on God. Pray first. I'll tell you where I want to start this morning is with, hopefully these are familiar words from James, uh, the brother of Jesus, more accurately, the half-brother of Jesus, he said these words, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us, or in the King James, a man with like passions. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its crops. This is where we're going today. We're going to talk about the power of prayer. I believe, as E.M. E. Bounds said, prayer is one of the most powerful forces in the universe because when we simply bend a knee, the creator of the universe also bends a knee to listen to every word that we say. Prayer is powerful. It changes the course of history. And this scripture from James uses the word. It says the, pra the prayer of a righteous man is powerful 
and effective. Actually, one word there for powerful and effective, it's the same word, it's an ergo, because they didn't have English when they wrote the Bible, the New Testament here 2,000 years ago. Uh, Greek was the language of choice. So that was the word energo, the word that we get energy from. And it's a very accurate translation to say it's effective prayer, or in the King James, the old school language that the Bible was first translated into English in, the word was effectual, effective in our contemporary English. Uh, Again, the word energo from two words, ergo, the word we get uh, ergonomics from having to do with work, and en meaning in. So energo is to put work into something. Uh, the implication of the word energo, also intrinsic to the word energy, is it's not just effective, it's not just worked in, but it's worked in and there's a dynamic that comes from it. There's something powerful about it. And so it wasn't good enough in the uh, New International, New Living Translation just to say that uh, the prayer of a righteous man is effective, but more accurately, there's, there's a power to it. There's work that's put into it and there's energy, there's life, there's something that comes out of it the power of prayer. And then to illustrate that, James right away jumps into talking about Elijah for a minute. Elijah was a man just like us. To me, that's one of the most comforting phrases in all of Scripture. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I think about these heroes in the Bible and I think, wow, if only if I could be that kind of person of faith. If I could be like... Esther, if I could be like Job, if I could be like Elijah or Elisha or one of the prophets, that, that would be an incredible thing. But James' words are this, and again, you got to get this is from a guy who grew up with Jesus. A guy who knew what, isn't, what it was like not just to hang out with godly people or biblical heroes, but the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth, fully man, fully God, our Lord Jesus. James grew up with this guy. And look at James' perspective on Elijah. Elijah was just a regular guy. And by that, I don't mean like as opposed to constipated. I mean like he was just normal. He had similar passions to us. He was just who he was. He had this freedom to be himself. He was, but he was just like us. And again, I find great comfort in that because many times when I think of Bible heroes, I think of something incredibly unattainable, but James seems to be painting the opposite picture, that Elijah was just a regular guy. And look how he unpacks this. What I want to do is, rather than just sticking to this story, I want to really uh, jump into the story headlong as it's found in 1 Kings 18. And I'm just going to plow through this scripture, pull out some points, and end with some conclusions. So here's the story of Elijah that James was referring to. It's found in 1 Kings 18, and we'll just kind of pull highlights out of the chapter. It says in verse 1, after a long time, in the third year, that's the third year of drought, 
the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I'll send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And something you need to know about this, you, you'll see this in the subsequent verses. I won't take time to unpack it all, but there's actually a hit out on Elijah's life. And not just in the region, not just in the nation, but internationally, King Ahab has put a price on Elijah's head and looked for him everywhere. So when God speaks to Elijah and says, go present yourself to Ahab, he's basically saying, go meet the guy who has a hit out on your life. Who would do that? Like God speaks to him and look at Elijah just simply responds and goes. Who would do that? Who would risk their life? Who would take their life into their own hands and go meet the most powerful man in the nation? Who would be that courageous? Who would be that reckless? Elijah would. <laughs> His name's Elijah Wood. Just, wow, tough crowd. I thought that was good. I but there's this incredible practical faith here from Elijah to, to literally take his life into his own hands and go and meet Ahab. Uh, a few weeks ago here at this campus, we, we unpacked practical faith. Remember this? We talked about Abraham. He set out on a journey, even though he didn't know where he was going. And we talked about Practical faith. That's where it starts for Elijah. It's not just going to visit somebody. It's not just responding to some little task God has put in his heart. He's literally risking his own life to go meet Ahab. A few verses later, in verse 16, Obadiah, a fellow prophet, went to meet Ahab and told him, Ahab went to meet Elijah because Obadiah told him Elijah's back in town. Verse 17, when the king saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Can I just tell you, people who function in powerful prayer have a reputation. They stir things up. They are agents of change. They're not just kind of going with the flow, doing what everybody else does. I'll tell you, to, to spend even a minor amount of time in prayer consistently will change your reputation. In verse 18, Elijah responds, I've not made trouble for Israel. It's you and your father's family that have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals, the idols. So in a very respectful way, Elijah confronts the king who's saying this is all Elijah's problem, and Elijah says, no, dude, this is you. You've followed after idols. You've left God's way. And respectfully, I really appreciate this about Elijah, respectfully, he tells the king off. As we read on in the text, verse 19, here's the challenge from Elijah. He says, now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. 
and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Again, I so appreciate this about Elijah. He, he recognizes there's a, a strong gap between where he's at, a follower of God. There's him and very few others who are following God in Israel at that time. There's 850 people who are following the Baals, the idols, and Asherah. And I love this about Elijah. He just calls them out. Ahab and Jezebel and their wicked followers. He says, let's have a meeting. Let's, let's have a showdown. This one's not at the OK Corral. It's on Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people. And he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Again, I appreciate the heart of Elijah here that he lays out a challenge between God, the real God, Jehovah, Yahweh, and the Baals. And he says, you know, let's, let's follow the true God. But I am disappointed with the response of the people. There's just a general lethargy. They, they say nothing. And to me, what differentiates Elijah from the people, again, is not that he's a great prophet, that he has an ability to hear from God. It's, it's his passion for God. It's his zeal for God. Makes me reminiscent of the words of Jesus who says, zeal for your house has consumed me. That's right before he flips over the tables of the money changers, Jesus says those words. Again, as we read on in 1 Kings 18, verse 22, Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. I appreciate this, that again, Elijah's just like us. He's prone to whine. He's prone to compare himself to the wicked people that surround him, that outnumber him. And I don't know about you, but I get sucked into this trap. You know, why did the wicked prosper? How come people that are not doing anything for God, people that aren't churchgoers, how come they're doing so well, but I have my struggles? And I think that's a propensity that maybe many of us face. To, we just get sucked into being whiners. And, and Elijah here again, just like us, great man, great passion for God, but he does make the mistake of looking at what's going on around him. Good recovery, though, in verse 24. He lays out this Elijah challenge, as we call it. He says, when you call on the name of your God, and I call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Again, there's this practical faith from Elijah. He just, he's out on a limb. He is believing for something incredible. He's believing for a miracle. Now, I'm not suggesting you try this at work. 
unless, you know, God puts this specifically in your heart, then maybe pray about it. But, but this is pretty risky of Elijah. This is pretty edgy to say the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, yeah, what you say is good. There's this response that, yeah, let's, let's actually have the showdown. Let's, let's determine who's real, your God or these idols that others are following. And then in verse 36, after the prophets of Baal have tried unsuccessfully to get their God to answer by fire, which is kind of ironic because they're praying to stone and wood, you know, idols. Elijah responds by praying to the living God. And look at these words in verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. It's such a simple prayer that Elijah prays. And, and this is not the prayer that James was talking about, the prayer for water, the prayer for the drought to end, the prayer for the rain to come. No, this, this is the prayer where Elijah is inviting God to show up. And again, it's, it's not a formula. It's not something that I would encourage you to, to make a matter of prayer in your own life. But, but the concepts of this prayer are that he's humbly giving credit to God and he's recognizing the heart issue. Because at the end of the day, this, this is God's plan, is he wants to turn people's hearts to him. And in that regard, this is just a simple but beautiful prayer. Because it's not about Elijah winning. It's not about his own agenda. At the end of the day, this is about the divine agenda of people connecting with God. And that, my friends, is really the essence of prayer. It's just connecting people, whether it's ourselves, our friends, our family. It's about connecting people to God. And, and this is the essence and the power of prayer. I mean, what are you going to pray that God's going to say, really? I had no idea. Seriously, I mean, God knows everything. You're, you're saying, God, I'm just praying for my dog, the one we were praying for a few weeks ago, the one with herpes. Again, it's not a surprise to God. He created the dog. He knows the dog has health issues. So there's nothing we're going to pray. And again, the psalmist said, before a word is even on my lips, you know it completely, O God. So there's nothing we're going to pray that is helping God in terms of information. The whole 
the whole spirit of prayer, the power, the essence of prayer, is again, when we bend a knee and call on God, what we're saying is we start our prayer and say, oh God, by that confession, he's God and I'm not. See, the power of prayer is actually in our weakness. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul who said, when I'm weak, he's strong. The power of prayer is not found in me. It's found on my reliance, my dependence on God. And here in this beautiful expression of Elijah, he invites God to turn people's hearts back to him. And what does God do? God shows up in power. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. If you remember the story, they doused the sacrifice with water. They just smothered the thing with water so it wouldn't be flammable. And God shows up as the all-consuming fire, and he doesn't just burn up the sacrifice, but the wood, the stones, the soil, and even the water out of the trench. Wow. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate, meaning forward on their faces, and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Cool. Like, that's a good day for Elijah. There's a measure, I'm sure, of personal vindication there. He's been on the run for years because he was the prophet that announced a season of drought was coming. Again, he had a hit. He had a mark on his life. He's a wanted man, and God shows up, even though the nation is enamored with Baal and following these idols, God shows up and answers by fire. Such a cool story. Such a powerful story of how God shows up. But it, it's interesting to me, in spite of God showing up as the all-consuming fire, in spite of the people responding with this prostration and falling down before God, that's not the part of the story that James was focusing on. Remember James said, prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't. And then he prayed it would rain, and it did. It's the rain not the fire, that's the focus of the story. So this is, I want to just finish off by looking at these last few verses. In verse 40, Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized the prophets, and Elijah had them brought down to Kishon Valley and had them slaughtered there. Amen. Hmm. Again, this is fairly typical of the Old Testament era where there was this fear of corruption. There was a fear that the other idols, the other nations, would lead the people of God astray, pulling them away from their affection and wholehearted devotion to God. 
And they responded with their human nature. Well, if that's a threat, then let's kill the threat. Let's eradicate the threat. Let's get rid of these people. The beauty of the New Testament is in Christ, we see that there is a better way. There's a way of peace. We actually believe that God is bigger than the competition. In the Old Testament, rightfully so, they were fearful of these idols because people got sucked in. But now in the New Testament, even though we serve an invisible God, there's this overwhelming belief that God is greater and will triumph in the end. And we don't need to manifest violence or murder to overcome the opposition. We actually believe we can take the opposition in people who serve other gods, people from foreign nations, we can actually bring them in as refugees, love on them, care for them, show them the way of Jesus, that his way is a way of love and peace. And we don't need to fight. We don't need jihad for our religion to prosper because love triumphs over darkness. We're very excited about this family of eight that God has brought us. If you're fearful, if you're worried, yeah, maybe they, what if they turn out to be, you know, really strong in their beliefs? What, what if they become radicalized? I believe in Jesus' name that they will become radicalized by his love, by his transforming ability to, to change our hearts. And in the end, that's what the fire was all about that God sent, turning the hearts of people away from other ideologies, other ways of living and saying, look, there's the way of love. And Jesus demonstrated that, didn't he, when he laid down his life. I don't know if you remember this old hymn, but there's an old hymn that says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set himself free when he was hanging on the cross. But what did he do instead? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But here we're seeing the Old Testament manifestation of fear and murder, eradicating people of different ideologies and mindsets. Not the fullness of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is found in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So I just wanted to clarify that just in case any of you were thinking of maybe killing people of a different ideology. Just wanted to make that abundantly clear. Hmm. But check out this verse in verse 41. Elijah says to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there's the sound of heavy rain. I like this. I memorized this as a boy, hearing this scripture from the King James, the, the old school version of the Bible, where Elijah said, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. <laughs> okay, let me explain. Lest I sound psychotic. See, why this verse is so 
humorous, like divinely humorous, is he doesn't actually hear a literal, physical sound. There's zero clouds in the sky at this point. You'll see this as it unfolds in the scripture here in just a moment. He's not hearing a literal sound of thunder or uh, he's not hearing the rain showers like maybe some of you heard yesterday afternoon. That was a powerful rain. We had our back windows open. Kind of came rushing in a couple of our back windows. I had to pull out a towel and dry off the floor. I mean, I could hear it, but probably because the windows were open. Sometimes pastors aren't the smartest people. And uh, I heard the sound, and I got the towel after I closed the windows. But see, for Elijah here, there's no literal sound. But he hears it in his heart or in his mind or in his imagination or in his spirit, whatever you want to call it. He's hearing a sound. It's not a literal sound. And again, I want, I want you to get this, the heart of this thing. This, this is the essence of faith. This is the essence of the power of prayer. He's hearing something that can't be heard with his natural ears. He's, he's seeing something that can't be seen with his natural eyes. He's sensing something in his heart or in his spirit that, that's not something that's literally tangible in the environment. And that's the power. It's, it's rooted in faith. And, and it's, this is what I want you to see. It's so tangible for Elijah that he says to the king, not just some guy, he says to the king, you know what? You should have something to eat and drink. Like you got to make ready because the rain is coming. <laughs> Verse 42, so... Ahab went off to eat and drink. Again, he knows that Elijah is one who hears from God. He's a prophet. He's connected to God. So Ahab has the wisdom. He goes off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of the mountain, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Again, we don't, we don't get this because we're not entirely familiarized with midwifery traditions in Hebrew culture. I actually was <laughs> uh, at a coffee shop this week in Hamilton, Ontario, and met a young lady there, and uh, she mentioned she was a student. She was working in the same shop where my son is working. And I said, what are you studying? And she said, midwifery. And I said, bless you. Like, she just said it so quickly, midwifery. I had no idea what she was saying. And uh, I said, sorry, what's that? And, and uh, what are you studying again? She goes, midwifery. Oh. Yeah, I, I haven't met a lot of midwifery majors. I just like to say that word, midwifery. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but this whole, again, we're not familiar with <laughs> these kind of traditions, especially in the Middle East especially 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Uh, but what Elijah's doing here is he's getting in a birthing position. He puts his face between his knees. So whether he's still upright and getting his face between his knees 
or squatting down as he does it. Either way, it's like he's getting into this birthing posture. This is the only real reference to Elijah doing anything that even remotely resembles prayer. Remember, James made a reference and said that Elijah prayed and God sent rain. James actually had a qualifier. He said that Elijah prayed earnestly or passionately. And I, I think this would qualify as, as pretty exuberant prayer, getting into a birthing posture. Again, I'm not particularly prone to this myself. I, I tend to go with, you know, some kneeling, some standing, maybe walking around a little. I'm not one to get into a violent position of intercession as I pray. But Elijah's doing something here. I, I just want you to stick with the story. One quick cross-reference here, Hebrews 5, verse 7. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. I hear people say all the time, you know what, you don't have to, you don't have to yell when you pray. You don't have to get crazy. You don't have to be loud because God's not deaf. And yet I see this verse in Hebrews 5, 7. It doesn't say it's a one-off thing. It's, it, it, it implies, again, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, not during the day or the season, but probably more than on one occasion. The scripture says that Jesus offered up loud cries and tears. I mean, if anyone could ever get away with saying, the Father knows my heart, it would be Jesus. But rather than taking a passive posture in prayer, Jesus is one who prayed with, look at what it says on the screen, loud cries and tears. Forgive me, I'm not trying to be formulaic here. But the essence of what's going on here, if I can put it in a word, it's passion. It's not passive. It's heartfelt. He's not afraid to get his emotions attached to his communication with God. I remember the first time I studied this verse here, Hebrews 5, 7. It messed me up. Because I wanted to just kind of tuck that one away and say, no, I, I just want to pray quietly. I want to be contemplative. I want to be my nice little quiet, reserved Canadian self. And look at Jesus being all Hebrew on this. Look at him being all Israeli. Look at him being all Mediterranean. Yeah, look at him being all Mediterranean culture here and just 
Seriously? Loud cries and tears? Who does that? Oh, Jesus. Awkward. This morning, I don't want to just give you permission to be passionate in your faith. I want to lay this verse out for you as it was laid out for me. Because I coupled this with what Paul said. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. There's not just a... There's not just a permission, but there's an invitation here to maybe open up our hearts and our minds to doing prayer a little differently than we've ever done it before. Again, if you're a quiet, passive prayer, that's great. I'm not here. I'm not, this is not about judging style. But I remember the first time that I actually got a little violent in prayer. Did you catch that song we sang earlier? I love to shout your name. How many of you are feeling like a liar singing that this morning? Like, come on, I'm, I'm as Canadian as can be. I love to mumble his name. I love to passively whisper his name. Jesus. Jesus. Sometimes I might even really get excited and say his name almost at a whispering volume. Like, I read scripture like this, and I'm sorry, it, it messes me up. But if I'm, if Jesus is my primary role model in the Christian faith, and I'm seeing this is how he prayed, I'm understanding Elijah, when he called on God for rain, and here's the deal, God already spoke and said it would rain, and Elijah, as he goes into prayer, gets into a birthing posture. Like, his body seems to be involved in prayer. Like, he's really into this. I'm just putting it out there. No pressure. You can remain Canadian. Again, I'm not picking on any style or... I'm just saying, for me to come to this kind of place where I would actually shout his name, I had to dig down deep. I remember being at youth conferences and youth retreats as a kid. and You know, you get into these worship experiences and people are starting to jump and bounce and dance around a little bit and and it's easy for us as adults to say oh that's youth worship that's it's actually there's a better word for it than youth worship actually biblical <laughs> no pressure <laughs> but i mean david in the psalms he goes into all kinds of exhortation to shout to the lord to sing loudly uh, again some of the hebrew words for worship are like to to spin and twist to jump, to, to shout, to extol, to get excited as you talk about God. 
And again, we don't always get this because we're not that familiar with the Hebrew culture that this came out of. A buddy of mine, Johnny, was at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Johnny's American, so Johnny doesn't hesitate to ask questions if he doesn't understand something. So there's Johnny standing at the Wailing Wall, and he sees all these Orthodox Jewish believers at the Wailing Wall doing these kind of prayers. And they're praying and they're saying things, but, you know, they just keep moving the whole time. They're praying. And Johnny said to one of the Jewish brothers, in, in such a respectful way, Johnny says, Dude, why are you doing that? He, he heard the guy praying some things in English, so the guy says, Orthodox Jewish guy, responds, um, when we pray as Orthodox Jews, we pray according to the Torah that says we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when I pray like this, it's because I want every cell in my body to be responding to God, all my strength. And as a Christian believer, when Johnny told me that story, I thought, I, I need to wake up. I need to get out of my spiritual coma. Again, I'm not saying you're in a spiritual coma. I'm saying for me. I've been so passive. I've been, you know, and again, I get that there are sides of the faith and different expressions. I, I, I love what my contemplative brothers and sisters have taught me. I've, I've been in a monastery. I've had days of silence. I appreciate what I learned from, from those traditions, but I also appreciate there's something over on this other end of the spectrum that's calling me to a place of, of passion, not passivity. There, listen, there's a power in this. When I can, like the psalmist David did, when he spoke to himself and he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and a little bit of what is with, no, sorry, he didn't say that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. See, there's a power to this. And again, it's not about style. It's not about a formula. It's about a posture of the heart that says, I'm so committed to God on the inside, it's actually spilling out into this temporal realm. A little bit of excitement, a little bit of raising my voice, a little bit of moving my body around. Again, this, this isn't just a Hebrew. This isn't just a Mediterranean cultural thing. For some reason, the scripture were, scriptures were written both in the Hebrew and the Hellenistic cultures, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Roman influences. And the authorship calls us to a place of response that actually moves into the emotional and physical realm. No pressure, I'm just putting it out there, a different way of thinking. Please don't throw stones. Please don't start the chant, crucify him, crucify him. I'm just saying, as I read these kind of scriptures, something stirred in my heart. Almost done. Verse 40 through, verse 43. Elijah says, go and look towards the sea. He said to his servant, and the servant went up and looked. There's nothing there. 
said the servant. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And then the seventh time, I so love the heart of Elijah on this, that he didn't quit. Again, in verse 1, God said, I'm going to send rain. God's already answered by fire, but Elijah said, Lord, you said you're going to send rain. And Elijah doesn't quit on the promise of God. See, this is where there's real power in prayer, is when we align our hearts with what God is saying. When those two components come together, when the divine and the human come together, the divine word of the Lord, the faith of our hearts. Elijah responds, and he doesn't just pray once and say, well, nothing happened. I guess I missed that one. I guess my faith was too big. Elijah keeps praying. Listen, when God says in his word, he's not willing that any should perish, but everybody should come to repentance, don't quit on praying on that one. If you've got kids that aren't serving the Lord, do not give up on them. You've maybe prayed hundreds of times. It is God's desire that your kids be saved. Keep praying. Pray seven times. Pray 700. Pray 7,000 times if you have to. Contend for the purposes of God. I notice this has affected a lot of us in our theology of healing. Yeah, well, I tried praying a dozen times. I tried praying 50 times. I tried praying for years for this situation, and nothing changed. I just want to cross-reference a message I preached last year out of Matthew's gospel on the healing power of Jesus. Everywhere he went, every sickness, every disease, Jesus healed it. Every time except once. It's the norm for people to be healed. But are we willing to contend? Are we willing to get passionate about our prayer? And again, I don't want to be accused here of being formulaic that, well, if I just pray harder and pray longer, God's going to answer my prayer. Here's the deal. It comes down to the heart issue where I'm continually dependent on God. If he says yes and releases the miracle, awesome. If he says no and he doesn't release the miracle, I'm still going to love him. But if he just says wait and I got to keep praying, how is that a bad thing? I'm getting closer to him. I'm depending on him. I'm relying on him. And this is Elijah's posture. Seven times he sends his servant out to go and check for the rain. Nothing. But he keeps praying. And then the seventh time the servant came back. See it there in verse 44. And he reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So up until the end it had been Mr. Blue Sky. But finally, he sees a cloud rising the size of a man's hand. I'm not totally clear on that reference if it means the size of a man's hand at arm's length or at the back of the auditorium or the size of a man's hand who's at the front door of the theater. I'm not sure how big the cloud is. But up until that point, there had been no clouds in the sky. 
But Elijah was the one who said, I hear the sound of heavy rain coming. Elijah could hear in his heart what God was doing. What a beautiful story. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And this is, again, the power of prayer is seeing what is unseen. When I read the headlines, God help us, it's depressing. When I see what's going on in our city, in our province, in our nation, seriously, it's discouraging. But when I talk with the creator of the universe about the state of our city and our province and our nation, there's an excitement that comes into my heart. Because I hear what he's saying, that he has plans to prosper our city. Plans to give us a hope and a future. I understand that for as many who call on the name of the Lord our God, they will be saved. There is everlasting life. Again, the power of prayer is to see the world as God sees it, not as something going down the toilet, something going to hell in a handbasket. This is my father's world. (laughs) I see what he wants to do. I see the healing and the life and the salvation that he wants to bring here in the south part of Calgary, how he wants to restore people, how he wants to fix broken marriages, how he wants to heal hurting hearts, how how he wants to bring families together again. These are the purposes of God. And again, the power of prayer is to see with your spiritual eyes what your literal eyes can't see. As Elijah saw and heard the rain showers coming after three and a half years with no rain. Wow. So, punchline. Meanwhile, sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, heavy rain came, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. That's it. The rain came. Not just the inevitable, well... Had to rain sooner or later, I guess. Couldn't stay dry forever. I believe that Elijah actualized the promise of God through faith, through his passionate response in prayer, through his persistent seeking of the face of God. And he saw the fulfillment of his promise. So, again, this is what James had pointed us towards. The prayer of Elijah that ended the the drought. Real quick, I want to give you some practical application. The challenge to me is, am I passive or passionate 
Am I a participant or a spectator? See, a lot of times in the faith, God's doing stuff, and we're just like, yeah, well, let's just, let's just wait and see what God does. But he actually invites us to participate with him. Even though he had promised the rain, Elijah still stepped up, acted, and prayed, and believed for the fulfillment of what God has promised. So let me just apply this quickly in three areas. The first, obviously, is prayer. As we're moving towards being a pray-first congregation, not just a church that prays occasionally, but a church consumed with prayer, I want to ask you this simple question. Are you passive or passionate when it comes to the things of prayer? I'll be the first to say I, there are times I'm not passionate at all. There's times where prayer just feels like a duty. It's just something I've written into my calendar. It's something I should or I ought to do. And to that, I want to just invite God into my heart and say, God, forgive me for my apathy. God, forgive me for times when I just don't care. God, I don't even know how to care. Holy Spirit, would you give me a renewed passion? Would you give me something I've been praying a lot this past year, would you give me an undivided heart? Not a heart that's distracted, but a heart that follows hard after you. I want to invite you in the coming months, we're going to be taking a prayer focus when we gather together for Sunday nights, roughly once a month for deep stream events. Our focus in the coming months is going to be passionate prayer. And if you've never come to a deep stream before, I'm going to ask you not just to come, but to come and say, God, would you help me be more passionate about prayer? The second area I want to apply these concepts very quickly, not just prayer, but in the area of praise that I touched on. Are we passive or passionate? Are we participant or spectator? Again, if you're just new here and you've never worshipped with us before, if you need some time just to check out what we're doing, be our guest just to spectate and check it out. But, but if you've been coming here for quite some time and you're still spectating in worship, now I'm not just talking if you've had a bad day or you've had a bad week and you don't feel like participating in worship. I'm talking if it is your norm to watch. I want to invite you into participation in worship. There's something very powerful. Marilee was touching on this this morning when she was talking about being in Africa and hearing the witch doctors and they just respond. In There's something so powerful when we as the people of God don't just come together to watch the worship team worship but we ourselves enter in to worship. And you might not be a singer. You might not be musical at all. I know I can hear some of you. (laughs) And that's why the scripture gives us all license when it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. (laughs) Whatever works for you. 
Just respond. Just, just something inside of you that would actually respond to God and actually tell him that you love him. Again, I know it's an issue of the heart, but I'm just going with basic scriptural teaching on worship that I don't have time to unpack this morning, where we're all invited to do things like shout to the Lord, sing to the Lord, make a joyful noise to the Lord, and actually respond to God. Something happens corporately. I mean, I know through the week you're praying, you're praising. It's like we have our own little candles at home, and we all bring our candles on Sunday morning. We have a stinking bonfire on Sunday morning. Something powerful happens when rather than being passive, we become people of passion, together especially. But this morning's teaching is not on worship. Last area, I want to apply this really quickly before we close. Actually, I'll invite the worship team to come now, is participation. I want to ask you, are you passionate or passive? If you've been coming to this church for more than a week, have you yet taken opportunity to volunteer with set up or tear down? Uh, like when you hear the announcement this morning about the refugee family coming, it, and, and here's the problem is there's like 30, 40% of you who are volunteering probably too much. And then there's a lot of us who are just watching appreciating maybe, maybe not. But I want to invite you to actually participate. If you've never volunteered at SunWest before, I want, to, I want to encourage you to improve your serve. And pray about this. Say, God, how can I get involved? Some of you have been very powerfully participating in supporting our vision to plant three new churches by the end of 2020. We're right on track with that vision. I commend you in your excellence in, in giving. I know a lot of you have made incredible sacrifices this last year. Some of you have started tithing for the first time. And again, I want to commend you for just your excellent faithfulness to God. And if you're here and you've never given before, consistently, maybe even 10% of your income, is, as many folks here are doing, I'm not asking you because we need the money. I'm asking you because something comes alive in your heart when you commit to the purposes of God, when, when you participate with the people around you to see the kingdom grow here in South Calgary and around the world. You guys have been ridiculously faithful and consistent. Even over these summer months, I know many of you coming back from holidays and see people popping into the office because, yeah, I've been away for a few weeks, wanted to get caught up on my tithes. Like, God bless you, crazy giving people. Because God will bless you for it. Again, it's not a formula. I know that sometimes, I've mentioned that a few times already this morning, but, but when we talked about giving in particular, people were concerned that it was a formulaic response. So salvation Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you'll be saved. And it's the same with giving. You honor God with your heart, you give to him. I'm sorry, he's going to bless you. I'm sorry, there's no way around it. It is a bit of a formula. I don't know how he's going to bless you. I don't know when he's going to bless you. But I love hearing the stories of how God is blessing Sun Westers. 
for their faithfulness and their goodness. So this morning, I just leave you with that. I want to move out of being somebody who's passive into a position of being passionate in prayer, in praise, and in practical participation. Worship team's going to lead us in a song, and then I'm going to come and close in prayer. Thanks, guys. I just make declaration over you today from the prophet Isaiah who said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of the Lord is risen. The glory of the Lord is risen on you. My declaration over you is that the glory of God rises in you. Where you might feel there is no passion. Where you might feel things have perhaps grown a little stale or cold. Perhaps you feel a little distracted. My declaration over you is the Spirit of God rises within you. To give you a new heart, new passion. As he spoke through Jeremiah to take a heart of stone. I don't know about you, but I'm prone to stone. But he said he'd take that heart of stone and put in a tender heart of flesh. So, Father, I thank you for your promise. It's your passion for prayer. Your passion to, to just be with your people, to connect with you. You're stirring that in us today. Giving us a deeper passion for prayer and praise and to participate in your kingdom. We say today, Father, that we love you with all of our hearts, our souls, our mind, our strength. Lord, would you stir within us a desire like was in Elijah? That, Lord, even though you had clearly spoken what you were going to do, he did not hesitate to participate with you, to actualize your promises through prayer and intercession, to contend for the things of the kingdom, to fearlessly go against opposition to believe for what God had promised. And so, Lord, we believe for the salvation of our families, our friends, our co-workers. We're believing that your love is going to make an incredible difference in them to bring transformation into their hearts. Lord, give us a passion for souls, a passion for the lost like we've never had before. God, move our hearts with the things that move your heart. Give us a tenderness like we've never known before. Thank you, Lord, that you're making us a pray-first church, passionate in prayer, persistent in prayer, knowing the power of prayer. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to change our hearts and minds. Cover over us as we go from this place today. I thank you there's going to be sunshine tomorrow. We call it in even now by faith, knowing that there's good weather coming, knowing that fall isn't quite here yet. Lord, you've put a spring in our step, a song in our hearts. We love you, and we go with your blessing and peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Hug somebody's neck before you go and grab some coffee and a cookie. Bless you.